Catch us on the web at english.rti.org.tw. Thank you so much for joining us here today at Radio Taiwan International. I'm Andrew Ryan coming to you from Taipei, Taiwan. Coming up this hour, we're going to have for you Lights Camera Asia with Jake Chen. He's going to be wrapping up a mini-series about Tokyo Story, a movie that was made after World War II. And also in the spotlight in that program, Shirley Lin is going to be talking with Anne Liao, who's involved in communication design and education. But first up today... Here in Taiwan. Today is Thursday, February 27th, and you're listening to Here in Taiwan on Radio Taiwan International. In the studio today, we have Jake Chen. Hello. And Shirley Lin. Hello. And I am, once again, Andrew Ryan. In today's program, we're going to tell you about one of the most popular things to do this season, and that is to cancel events. That's right. Cancel or postpone those are the orders of business in this time of COVID-19. Also, we're going to be uh, talking about a school that got in trouble for using hypochlorous acid water to disinfect its students. And, uh, you know, can you make money just by lying down and doing nothing? We're going to tell you a story about a guy who may be my new hero. All that and more in today's Here in Taiwan. Don't go away. So as we mentioned at the top of the show today, one of the most popular things to do is to cancel or postpone events. And uh, I'm going to start off with a big one. Uh, the president has announced uh, uh, just yesterday that preparations for her second inauguration ceremony have been suspended in order to prioritize prevention efforts against the COVID-19, the new coronavirus outbreak, uh, which we are fighting here in Taiwan. Now, this was originally scheduled for May 20th, as it happens every year. Uh, that's when the presidential inaugurations take place. Uh, but no large-scale public event will take place on that day this year. Uh, and she said that the ceremony is going to be held in accordance with advice from the Central Epidemic Command Center, which is basically telling people when it's a good time to do big public events where you know a lot of people are in closely confined spaces and when not to do them. Right. Uh, and Jake, actually, we're going to pivot straight into your story. You've got a story there. Uh, about uh, some different activities that have been canceled or have been, I think this is interesting, have been moved online. Right. Uh, now, these events arguably are not as high in scale as the one you just mentioned. But, uh, you know, as we know, this week schools are in, but uh, I guess part of the fun is out, right? Mm, um, you know, after exactly. a two week delay. So students are back in school. You know, that's great. Uh, you know, at least for the parents, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, the kids probably didn't enjoy that, but they don't get to have as much fun. So there are a number of activities uh, in schools. Now, I'm talking about schools all across Taiwan that uh, are being canceled. Uh, some of them include a uh, group marathon that involved all the middle and high school students um, 
a half marathon event that's scheduled in the middle of March. This is a citywide thing that they hold every year. This is for Taipei City? This is for Kaohsiung City. Oh, Kaohsiung City, okay. Yeah, and uh, that's canceled. And also in Kaohsiung, they have this Gangdu Cup uh, national track and field events. So this uh, this competition attracts track and field athletes from Taiwan and very often from the rest of Asia as well. Um, that, I think, is still going to be uh, held. Yes, that's going to be held, but a lot of athletes have announced that they're not coming. Uh, I'm talking about local athletes and athletes from outside of Taiwan. Uh, I'm talking about Chinese, uh, Japanese, Korean athletes. They mm. will be banned as well. Yeah. So, yeah, boo, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> not, that's yeah. not happening either. I'm actually really worried about the Olympics, you know, which is supposed Tokyo? to be in Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah. When is that uh, scheduled to take place? Now the- they're saying it's still going to happen. Okay, yeah, I, I read that too. It's yes. supposed to be like, um, it's usually in the summer, I think August maybe mm-hmm. is when okay. they usually have it. Right. It's a little ways off, but... I mean, think about all the expenses they put into preparing for it, you mm. know, so they wouldn't be so quick as to say, well, we're going to cancel it or postpone it. Yeah, so here is a solution that the uh, National uh, Taiwan University, so Taiwan's top university, has adopted for one of its main events this year that I don't think the Tokyo Olympics can adopt, which is move, like the uh, it's a floral it's a local floral exhibition held mm-hmm. at the university every year, so it's going to be held online. Right. When, so when you're oh. watching flowers, it doesn't really hurt that much to not see it in person. <laughs> right. But when you're going to compete with other people, you can't really. You, <laughs> you have know. to be in the same room. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you can't just key. change the whole thing into e games. No. So, right. 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 So yeah, that's uh, that's uh, the NTO event is going to be not exactly canceled. But you know we're gonna be watching flowers uh, online. Yeah. Well, not watching them grow. I guess that could be you yeah. could be sitting there for a little while, right? Very long videos. <laughs> yes. But you can gaze at the flowers. Yeah. It's not yeah. gonna be the same. Not really the same. You can't smell Uh-oh. the fragrance yeah. of the flowers. Right. Uh, but I know that a lot of religious ceremonies have started to move their events online. Um, now, as of Wednesday night, it looked like the uh, Mazu pilgrimage was still going to be underway. Right. But I know that a lot of other events um, have been moved online as well. I think people are also doing, uh, we talked about it in here in Taiwan, about um, like maybe doing tomb sweeping online or... I don't oh, know. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think the government has suggested that to a lot of people. So uh, we'll, yeah. we'll see what happens uh, for that. But I think, uh, you know, in these times, it's important to, you know, to make sure that you don't, you know, hold too many big events with lots of people. I think the concern is, is the closer people are packed in together, the greater the chances of, you know, some sort of an infection taking place. Right. Um, if you can spend time with your friends and family in smaller spaces, I mean, you know, fewer people, that's probably watch flowers. better. Okay. And you can, you can plant some flowers and watch them uh, grow on your balcony. That's right. also a good idea, right? Okay, we're going to uh, actually talk about another uh, school-related story here. Uh, Jake, you have a story there about a school that got into a little bit of uh, hot water for using hypochlorous acid water to disinfect their students right um as we all know school the new semester officially started two days ago after a, a two-week delay so school has been under p's and q's most schools 
to make sure that all the students are properly disinfected, you know, as they enter and leave the school perimeter to minimize the chances. So yeah, after the the tent incident that we talked about yesterday, that got you know one school I think in Taoyuan in hot water. It was in Yilan, wasn't it? Oh, sorry, in Yilan. Yes, it's yeah. a small tent that they try to put a student in. So they were for- basically replicating the same idea that's used in hospitals, which have these triage units that are supposed to be under big tents, like marquees out the front, out in front of the hospital, in front mm-hmm. of the front door, so you can make sure that people don't have the coronavirus or at least don't have a fever and right. you can like put people into different places well they were quarantining kids who had a fever inside a little pup tent yeah that's used for camping with poor ventilation and a lot and the, oh. the, the, the school's uh idea was well you know we do a lot of camping with the kids we thought it'd be a fun thing for them to do <laughs> but i guess the local authorities weren't having it so right yeah i doubt the parents would like it either yeah it's all about packaging i think right <laughs> quite literally <laughs> So now we have another school that was doing something that, perhaps even more of a concern, right? That, more worrisome. That tried probably the wrong method. I mean, definitely the wrong method. So yeah. this is a school in Taoyuan. Apparently, this is quite controversial. So this article didn't uh, release the school's name. So this is a... Oh, they didn't even say if it's uh, elementary or middle school. So I saw a video of it. It looks like an elementary school, I think, because they had the kids walking through like a little tunnel. Yeah. And, and they were spraying the kids down as they walked in. Right. It's a uh, <gasps> sprinkler inside the tunnel. And that's a bad idea. I mean, to spray kids like that is already a bad idea. <laughs> to spray them with, as again, hypochlorous acid water is bad because this is an environmental substance. It's mm. used to disinfect not human beings like really like industrial grade disinfectant so yeah what were they thinking i'm surprised that there was nobody inside the school that was a little upset about it or maybe that's how we learned about it is because people inside the school were telling other people about it right it got passed from inside a school to a local uh borrow chief and then it got posted online it quickly got viral a lot of Mm. medical professionals chimed in you know because they feel like this is really is absurd and it's and it, the medical professionals have called on the public to just really just use alcohol. It's not not everything that's marked, you know, disinfectant should be used in this situation. Mm. So you know, read the label thoroughly before you spray before it. you spray down your kids in your school. <laughs> right. Actually, I don't know if you saw images of it, but it was pretty impressive. They had a huge like plastic tunnel set up with arches, and then yeah. the kids walk through it and just get hosed down. Yeah. I'm not. I mean, I don't know how much. Maybe they didn't get hosed down, but they were definitely but getting. They, Sprinkles on it. And like, uh, I'm not sure that that's really proven, you know, even using alcohol to spray kids, like their whole body. I'm not sure that that really helps. Right. What most places do is just spray your hands. Uh, Mm -hmm. So for example, if you go, you come to RTI or if you go out to eat at a restaurant, sometimes a restaurant will also spray your hands when you come in. And that seems to make sense because, you know, a lot of people touch their faces. Yeah. They might have like... Um, virus on their hands um and so you know just simply disinfecting your hands um taking a temperature reading is probably sufficient for you know you know it's the best that you can do for most um uh, venues right definitely i think i've seen several schools that have sort of trays of alcohol where kids step in before they step into school mm. so oh, yeah. to disinfect the sole of their their sneakers <laughs> yes um but that seems reasonable too right yeah mm. like all your points of contact basically with the surrounding environment but mm. like but like you said earlier beyond that i don't see a point of you know well i guess maybe because you know um everybody's like going around buying um alcohol oh so there probably, probably wasn't any running, alcohol 
running low or they're out of it or they thought, oh, maybe something of a substitute is fine. And, and then it's they didn't not. do research <laughs> yeah, on they it. They didn't yeah. really finish reading the whole label. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was interesting. I was watching, um, we had an, uh, a video here at RTI. You can check this out um, on our YouTube page that was showing you proper ways to wash your house down and like different techniques that you can use that are really useful. Um, and it says expert opinion. It's how to clean your house. Um, but one of the things it was saying is, is that for floors, you can use like bleach, right? So mm. you can use a little tiny ca like ca uh, cap full of bleach with like a liter of water. Uh, and then that just helps kill the germs on the floors. Of course, you don't want to put that on your hands. Definitely. Uh -huh. um, and then if you're uh, like, let's say you have a vinyl couch and you want to wipe it down, it's saying the best thing to do is not spray it directly on the couch. You spray it on a cloth uh -huh. and then you wipe, wipe the, the uh, couch with the cloth. Mm. Uh, and that's more effective uh, than the other ways. The other thing that I thought was fascinating is they're saying when you're cleaning your bathroom or if you're using, you know, water to hose down your bathroom, a lot of people, you know, we think use hot water because that's, you know, better at killing germs. Yeah. But yeah. it actually says hot water um, is conducive to spreading the virus. No, really? Yeah. Warmer temperature is conducive to their growth, right? Yeah. I so, yeah. well, because maybe not the instant jet of water, but you have to remember the water is not boiling water, right? No. Boiling oh. water could kill it potentially. Yes. Right. But like, you know, something in a in a temperature that humans find acceptable, like to wash with, is actually a great temperature for viruses to grow in. Oh. So uh, instead, what you can do is you can use cold water, uh, use cold water, and then of course use your you know bathroom cleaners and things like that, and that should keep your uh, bathroom nice and sanitary without spreading the virus. Oh, great tips! Yeah. So just in case you're looking for tips, we got more. <laughs> we'll keep our eyes open. If we have any more um, uh, suggestions for you, we'll share them in here in Taiwan. Actually, one thing I wanted to mention that we didn't get the chance to mention while we we're talking about schools and like processing the kids to go on the front door. Uh, before we go on to this next story, I just wanted to mention that uh, one school in Banqiao, they uh, what they do is they line the kids up and they have four stations and there are 10 temperature guns at each station. How long do you think it can uh, they can process 2,000? Uh, 500 students. So four Ever. stations? Yeah. So that'd be like over 600 students per station? I guess so, yeah. Uh, uh, still. Uh, um, 40 minutes? 15 minutes. Wow. They've really? got it down pat. Yeah, they've got 10 uh, temperature guns at each station. Oh, okay. There's, so there's four lines and they have 10 uh, people using the temperature guns at one time. Okay. Wow. So they can like get them in and out. And you need to be able to do that really quickly because a lot of kids... They don't show up too early for school, right? <laughs> you show up 15 minutes in too advance. Too cool for school. Right? Too cool for school. <laughs> so I wanted to transition into another story that we have here. And uh, that is, do you guys feel like this has been a cold winter or a warm winter? Well, I thought it's been a cold winter, especially for those days that were really cold. Mm, the really you cold know, the days felt really cold, went down, right? Yeah, felt really cold. How about you, Jake? Do you feel a warm winter or a cold winter? I normally say cold, but I finally made a trip back home to Canada, and everything felt really <laughs> oh, warm here. Really? So. We're asking you, is that, that, that's not too accurate then, because right. you've got a different standard than the rest of us. <laughs> right, just for this year. Well, actually, it's been uh, a bit warmer this year. Um, we did have one big cold front and four small cold fronts. Uh, however, the temperatures uh, in line with global trends were a tiny bit warmer. And they're saying at the Central Weather Bureau here in Taiwan 
that the forecast for spring is also going to be warmer and drier, which oh. I think is interesting. One of the reasons for this is because the equatorial Pacific sea temperature is relatively warmer at the moment, and that's going to reduce humidity across Taiwan and cause temperatures to rise further. And I, I remember you saying that you have a concern. Is it the it's the drier temperature? Is that uh, the atmosphere? Is that bad for the crops? Is that the concern? Well, the concern is we don't have enough water, and then we end up having to ration water once the summer rolls around. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. does that but mean have, that? Have we done that before? Yes, we uh, have. Yes, um, um, in recent several years. years ago. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I think the real key is going to be in uh, May and June because that's when the plum rains start. And if for some reason we don't get the usual annual plum rains to the degree that we need it, then they're going to have to. We're going to be a little bit worried about water, but we still have a couple more months, so uh, I won't get everybody worried right. <laughs> until we get closer to the time. Okay, we want to finish off with a fun story here. You know, we all dream of having a job where we can just, you know, laze around. Uh, Shirley, you've actually found a guy who does it, and he's made some money off of it. Tell us、yeah. about this guy. Actually, this guy is from Wuhan, China.、Ah. Okay, that's where the、uh, COVID outbreak、uh, took place, and、uh, um, so a lot of cities are locked down in、uh, in China, of course Wuhan. And so he got really bored, this guy, and he decided to live stream him sleeping. Himself, yes, himself. <laughs> and、uh, after five hours, he woke up and then he realized, "Whoa!" He gained like five hundred forty thousand viewers. And then he did a second night, and and that went on for twelve hours live streaming. And his fan、uh, number of fans went from thirty-seven thousand to eight hundred thirty-eight thousand. Does he have like strange like sleep habits? No, right, he, or does he snore okay, funny? The like, reason he why he, during, yeah, during the reason、sleep? why he said、like、that he was going <laughs> to do that. Was because he wanted to find out if he actually snores. Ah.、Oh. Okay.、Um, well, now he's got some feedback. Yeah. yeah. Close to、well, a million people watching.、So. Yeah. His viewers told him that he does not snore. And、oh. the thing was that、uh, he,、um, his previous girlfriend,、mm-hmm. um, broke up with him because she complained that he snores. Ah.、Oh, see, that's key to the story, right? <laughs> right. I、yeah. guess. The man so, is、uh, secretly healing. So you know what? After he became like a, you know, like a really popular YouTuber,、uh-huh. she, she kind of wanted to get back with him again. You know. And he said. And he said, "Well, he didn't. He didn't say. He didn't say." Oh, But, now we、uh, need to know,、yeah. right?、Oh, But you know what?、Out. It's really funny because the second night, you know, he、uh, no, 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 the first night when he decided to live stream, he started at five p.m. and then immediately a hundred thousand people came on and said, "And so, how come you're not sleeping yet? You know, <laughs> go to sleep." And so he thought it's only five p.m. But he decided to lie down.、Uh-huh. He he couldn't get up to get some water、uh-huh. or to go to the bathroom,、uh-huh. and because people would probably complain that he's. You know, irresponsible. Right, it's right. It's just so funny. How much money do you make off of this? That's、um, the big actually, question. Actually, yeah. Well, after sharing off part of it with the live streaming platform,、uh-huh. um, he made seven thousand U.S. dollars. Seven thousand? Yes. How many nights? Sleeping two, two nights. nights. Oh my goodness! All right, career change. <laughs> that that tells you how important sleep is from a different angle. Seriously, seriously. Yeah, get, some, get some sleep. Get some sleep, everybody. Make some money while you're doing it. Well, thank you so much for joining us for here in Taiwan. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Jake Chen. And I'm Shirley Lin. Stay tuned for more. Come your way on RTI.
This is Radio Taiwan International. Listen, are you listening? <laughs> this is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Lights, camera, Asia. A look at Asian culture and history through the lens of cinema. Hello and welcome to Lights Camera Asia. Today, we are looking to wrap up our coverage of Tokyo Story. The movie tells a rather simple story of an elderly couple who travel from rural Japan to see their children, who live in the island nation's central metropolitan of Tokyo. Instead of heartfelt conversations, the couple is treated with a rather lukewarm attitude from all three of their children. These are all adults with their own careers. Some also have their own families, and they all claim to have little time or interest to spend time with their parents. Instead, the three children make up excuses to send their parents to each other's places, and at the end, the elderly mother dies on her way back home, leaving the elderly father behind to face his life going forward. We've、uh, already covered the story, and we've also looked at how the film's director Yasujiro Ozu adopts very unique camera angles to convey a sense of immersion. Throughout the film, the actors almost always talk directly into the cameras, and thus addressing the audience instead of addressing the other parties off camera, and making the audience feel like bystanders, like most movies do. Last week. We also talked about how Ozu deliberately slows down the pace of the film to match the rate of real-world conversations. When people talk to each other in Tokyo Story, we often feel that we are part of that conversation and that we are listening and talking along with them, while waiting for the pauses, the short breaks, and the many hesitations that people tend to have in actual conversations. The pace and the ultra-realism. Makes the film nowhere near as entertaining as your average family drama, but what it loses in entertainment value, it more than gains in immersion. Another part of the aesthetics of the film is the use of still camera angles. In most movies, the cameras move at some point to convey a sense of motion. Either the camera sits still in one place and follows a character passing by in a panning motion. Or the camera sets a fixed angle on a given character and moves along with him or her, so we as viewers feel like we are walking along as well. In other cases, sweeping camera motion is often used to show an expansive landscape. A tilt up or down motion can be used to show the height of a building or the depths of a ravine. 
Not to mention, in action sequences, sudden movement of the cameras are also used all the time to convey the speed and the power of the motions. In some extreme cases, a film can be even shot with one continuous shot. The camera will swoop in and out of hallways, gliding along the room, just to follow the character without cutting. However, Tokyo Story employs almost none of these common techniques. In fact, I rewatched the film very, very carefully just to get an accurate account of its camera use. And in all but one scene, which shows the elderly couple walking along the wall about five seconds, the director never uses any motion at all. This means that excluding that five seconds, the entire film, all two hours and fifteen minutes of it, is shot with static cameras, and all changes in perspective are achieved through cutting. When a group of people talk to one another, we see the cameras cut back and forth. When the elderly sit along a beach, we see them from a distance, sitting motionless to talk to one another. When we see the occasional movements in the screen, such as when the children run across a hallway, or when a few waitresses clean up the sheets in a spa, we see these characters move in and out of the given place, and the camera frame itself stays stationary from behind all the way to the end. The effect of this consistent still framing is very, very palpable throughout the film. As we said earlier, the film's pacing is already quite slow, as the main characters engage in conversations at a glacial pace. The motionless cameras further add to the sense of stillness. It conveys multiple layers of stillness. First of all, us as the viewers feel still all the time. It is as if all that we do throughout the entire movie is to sit there and either converse with the characters. Or to watch things unfold right in front of us. Well, we are very much involved in the conversations. We feel very distant from the things that take place around the characters. And this deliberate choice is very effective in helping to convey the sense of loneliness and helplessness of the two elderly protagonists in the film. While their children talk to them. And when they occasionally engage with other people, they are largely ignored throughout the film. And along with being ignored, comes a sense of powerlessness, the sense that there is nothing that they can do when their children ignore them. There is nothing they can do when their children send them all across the city instead of spending time with them. There is nothing they can do when they look at their grandchildren run around the house, except for wishing them to grow up as quickly as possible. The sense of powerlessness gets stronger and stronger as the film unfolds, and we, the audience, feel every bit of it when sitting across the other side of the motionless screen. Another effect of using motionless camera angles throughout the entire film. Is to convey the timeless nature of the story. We know that most of the film's plot takes place in 1950s Japan. The country at the time was undergoing a post-war recovery, and its economy was advancing at a super rapid pace. In fact, many Japanese movies made in the 1950s, so during the same period, 
portray the countries as a useful and very optimistic one. However, Tokyo's story is a far cry from that. It focuses on issues that are much less glamorous. The rapid expansion of the metropolitans, like Tokyo, meant more and more people, especially the elderly, are moving to the suburbs. The distance between families increases, and this means a gradual but sizable shift in family dynamics. The olden days, when several generations of a family live under the same roof, are fading into the background gradually, and in its place arises a new type of smaller families, or as we call it, the nucleus families. From a functional and financial standpoint, these new generation of families are much more capable of surviving on their own without relying on the support of their elderly. And this newly gained sense of independence also means that these families are less emotionally attached to their elder generation as well, and less so to each other. And that's what Tokyo Story is trying to show us on a deeper level. The experience of the two elderly is a reflection of an entire generation who's feeling increasingly detached from their children in post-war Japan. At that stage, the economy is moving at a million miles per hour. The younger generation is riding the waves, and the older generation are left behind. So, with the film's message in mind, we look once again at the director's choice to use static cameras throughout the entire film. I think he wants us to really gaze at every scene and to feel the sense that this issue that troubles this particular family is actually much bigger. It is something that permeates in Japanese society on many, many levels, and its effect is ever-present. By keeping all the cameras static, Ozu effectively turns every scene in the movie into a still photograph. And when we look at it from that perspective, we are more so looking at a slideshow than a traditional movie. The director wants every scene, every location, to be seared into our memory. He wants us to look and look very hard at the family lobby, where the elderly have disconnected conversations with their children, at the hallway where their granddaughter run around while giving them little attention, at the seaside where they gaze into the endless ocean and ponders about their own fate and the future of their offsprings, on the tea house. Where the elderly man shares the experience of being abandoned by his family with his old pals with similar experiences. The list of locations goes on and on, and we, the audience, are asked to come along, not to enjoy the ride in the traditional sense in the movie, but to sit quietly and truly see and soak in the situations that the protagonists go through. And to feel their pain and joy in a very, very involved manner. In a broader sense, the director has shown an issue that perpetuates in the Japanese society and for ages. The increasing generation gap doesn't just happen in this family; it has happened to a generation of post-war Japanese families who undergo drastic economic and political shifts, and to the next generation, and the next, and beyond. And while the phenomenon was still in its infancy stage when the film was made, we now see how wide-reaching it truly is 
after over 60 years. That speaks volumes about the film's foresight. There is, I believe, much, much more to say about Tokyo's story. It truly is a profoundly rich film on many, many levels. And I think even after four episodes, we've only covered parts of it. I hope what we've talked about within the time that we were given has helped showcase the film's brilliance. So we're going to wrap up this mini-series on this film. Next week, we'll continue the theme of films that focus on people's daily life, and we'll look elsewhere. Thank you so, so much for listening to Lights, Camera, Asia. I'm Jake Chen, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin, and with me in the studio today is Anne Liao, who is a social entrepreneur for uh, from Taipei, Taiwan, and who runs an education and design group focused on green technology and innovation. So let us welcome Anne. Hi, Anne. Hi. Thanks yes. for having me. Great. Um, I'm really excited to, you know, chat with you because I know you do a lot. You kind of wear a lot of different hats, it seems. What's your education background so that I can get an idea why you're doing what you're doing, which you, you'll say later. Yep. Um, so I studied communication design in Melbourne, Australia, and I did my exchange in Mel- uh, Mainz, Germany. Um, so it's all within, you know, um, you know, graphic design, photography, typography, anything that communicates with the audience, but visually. Um, so you can find people like art directors, creative directors in this field. Um, and that really helped me to do what I'm doing now in terms of, um, you know, being a social entrepreneur and uh, getting into startup life. Yeah. Yeah. So what exactly is, you know, I mean, you kind of briefly said it just now, you know, communication design, which I've never knew before I met you actually. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so what exactly is that? You say it's like using design to communicate? Can I say that? Yes. So, so it's a branch between like communications, right? Uh, and design. And so anything within like, how do we share ideas with the public? Um, how do we communicate more thoroughly, uh, more holistically, perhaps um, on a wide spectrum? Um, so photography is under, you know, communication design, uh, graphic design is under communication design. So it's really like overlooking um, like an umbrella um, over all of these different uh, other disciplines. I see. Mm. Oh, all right. It's part all of right. the same family, you can yeah, say. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know if my um, my audience has noticed, a, you know, some kind of accent coming yeah. from Anne. The thing is that, let's give a little background. You are from Taiwan, yes. though. 
but you were, wait a minute, were you born here? Yes. So I was, um, I'm not really um, an ABC, you can say, because I wasn't really, I'm not American born Chinese. Um, so I was born in Taiwan, in Taipei. Um, but because of my family, uh, we moved to South Africa. So I'm dual citizen, South African Taiwanese. Um, I lived there for about 10 years of my life. And then because of my dad's job uh, as a physics and mathematics research professor, uh, we moved to um you know, United States, uh, he was at Duke, and then we went to Holland, the Netherlands, and then it was uh, Taiwan for a year, and then it was Australia, Taiwan, and then I ended up being in South Korea, actually. So I graduated um, high school in Seoul, Korea, uh-huh. and um, yep, that's like from baby till 18. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, you've been around. So that's why there's that mix of different accents all together, but it's beautiful. Thank you so <laughs> like much. Um, going back on communication design, you said you started a company seven years ago. That's related to this, right? Mm. Actually, um, I started the company in 2017 over a span of um, doing education. So I was teaching uh, design thinking um, to to 9 to 12-year-olds, preteens. And the reason for that is because my my, um, care came from, you know, I just wanted um, kids to be able to feel more competent and confident um, because I did feel that a lot of adults or even peers, you know, maybe um, felt a bit insecure. And when you backtrack that, because I'm very interested in psychology um, and, you know, we found that most of the times it's your childhood, right? Mm -hmm. So um, when you are, you know, a preteen, it's kind of interesting because you're between a you know, a baby, you know, a child, and then, but now you're getting into adolescence, right? And that time when hormones are kicking in, that's when the insecurity starts to come in. Uh-huh. But if you have the right tools and the mindset to start training your brain, because I see the brain like a muscle, right? So if you train to have like a systematic approach to thinking, analyzing your emotions, but really being like constructive, uh, you're more likely to feel uh, more confident within yourself to see, do I... Um, just because someone doesn't like the color pink and I like pink doesn't mean that I'm a loser, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like you be able you're, you're able to see things perspective. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a very good example to give. <laughs> yes. But, um, so this psychology knowledge that you have mm. and, and education was that all part of the communication design major that you studied, mm-hmm. or was that separate from that? I, I mean, would say it is. Yeah. Oh. Because when you're a designer, you have to think about the user. Right. You have to think about even if you are not a, let's say, a, um, you know, a science major or something like that, you might be working for a startup that is right. So a lot of times I think empathy is a really big component of design, which is user centered. It's the first thing is to empathize. Oh, and yes, like even color, right? Color, color psychology, right? Yellow means certain things, or if it has a tone of blue, it feels a different way. So, um, you know, when we're designing for clients or even branding and identity, it's really about taking their wishes, right? Their hopes and their dreams. And how do we visualize that to then, um, you know, you know, uh, create a good dialogue with the audience, right? Mm, mm. And um, yeah, so it's definitely from that course, yeah, okay. communication design, yeah. So wait, let's go way back. I mean, why communication design? Mm. Was that, I mean, what were you, you grew up with what kind of interests or hobbies that got you into this field? Mm. So um, from, you know, when I was very young, I think I was always quite entrepreneurial because my <laughs> mom, you know, she is a like kind of a serial entrepreneur in her own right. And uh, my family has always been, you know, starting businesses in South Africa. So I grew up kind of in that culture. 
but I feel that um, the thing that really sparked my interest was social impact. I really, really cared about uh, like the environment growing up in South Africa. You know, you see wildlife and animals, and then you start hearing about how you know a lot of there there's a lot of trafficking, all these mm-hmm. kinds of things. And I feel like it's the hopelessness that really motivated me. Right? Like mm-hmm. if you're given the right tools, you can then create the changes that you want to make through communication. Mm-hmm. Because I started investigating products, and what actually pivoted everything was my interest in fashion and beauty blogging. Okay. So, so it was um, back then where uh, there was a big boom on YouTube, and um, you know, and then I started researching products. And I realized that sometimes the names of a product, even if it says organic, it's just the name. It's mm. not because it's organic, right? So that got me really interested in investigating ingredients. I'm uh. a bit of a big like you know nerd about this. <laughs> And then that then moved me into thinking, wow, if I can dissect everything like this, I want to dissect more. I want to learn about what I've been taught, okay, right, in the general of things. And communication design really, really made me see things in that way even more, right? Uh-huh. So photography and image will invoke a certain emotion or like a word will. And so I thought, I thought, oh, why not? Like, why does social impact always have to seem so kind of bland, right? Can we not like create the experience uh, to be as fun as a, you know, retail mm-hmm. experience or as fun as, you know, because learning should be fun. Mm-hmm. You know, it should be creative. It should be explorative. And during that process, you gain knowledge and wisdom in yourself that lasts longer than if you were to just like, um, you know, just read information and try to memorize information, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of times uh, academics yeah, that's especially just, here in Taiwan, it's all about rote memory. Right. And, and I feel like, you know, that's even a skill on its own right. I mean, I'm not saying it's, it's a bad thing. Right. Right. It's, it's like different people have to learn differently. And I felt that there just needed to be more tools available for learning, especially for a student like myself. You know, short attention span, I would say not even that, you know, I would call myself lazy even, right? But actually, it wasn't because I was lazy. It's because I didn't have the right tools to invest with, invest in. Mm-hmm. So um, now that I learned, I mean, design thinking and created these tools, I felt that it's for people that need to learn like me. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. So you sound like you're very inquisitive and, you know, curious George, you're a curious Anne. Yes, That yes. make you who you are today. Yes, yes. Very yeah. curious, yeah. I know. But what brought you back to Taiwan, though? Oh, because oh, your mom's here. Yes. So um, I've always lived away from my mom. And mm. uh, I just felt that, you know, there was a, a few different reasons. I think one of them is just um, never having lived with my mom because uh, she was always doing business in Taiwan. So mm. um, just coming back here to be with family um, for the times lost, right, kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, second was because she's, she has a biomedical company. So it's a, also, you know, a, a new company of hers. And um, I decided to come back and support through oh. design, right? A lot of yeah. times uh, that is actually where most of the money that you're paying. Oh. You know, as a startup, <laughs> as a business, you're mostly investing, right, in the logo, in the CI. Yes. And um, I could do that for her. So I thought oh. I, it's my way of giving back for all the years she's paid for my, you know, tuition <laughs> and, and, yeah. Oh, okay. So you've already designed the logo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 oh okay. Yeah. So simultaneously, I'm also developing, like my company is helping her company, like, yeah, manage the, the marketing and the design components. Right. But of course, um, in deciding to come back to Taiwan, I'm sure you've done research and 
And I think you see that there's a market here for whatever you're doing. Yes, yes. So um, if we're looking at uh, different countries as ecosystems, Taiwan's a really good place to incubate ideas, whereas it's not that great to accelerate ideas. So oh. when we are developing something like, for example, me, when I thought about really getting into education, like a building a business around the education uh, side of things, I knew that, you know, in terms of building a startup, it wouldn't be uh, feasible just because of the time I would need to develop, right? Like different prototypes. I would need to run different workshops. That amount of time would it, it would kill me if I was in a, di a different city, basically, mm. or a different country, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and so like that, it gave me a lot of leverage points, Taiwan, because we have a complete ecosystem of technology. We also have a lot of R&D industries, right? Mm. So um, even though I work in design thinking, what, how I, you know, the tools I develop to teach design thinking is actually surprisingly in fashion. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I remembered sharing uh, earlier privately um, about fashion and technology. Now, um, you know, a lot of technology can be tracked back to the fashion industry. Oh. And yes, yes. <laughs> so that's really interesting, right? Because textiles, you know, you can you can turn a fruits even into textiles. Sure. You can turn, yeah, like soybeans, something into silk. Mm. And there's different kinds of things. And that is what design thinking is about. It's about understanding there are so many ways you can form ideas by deconstructing, reconstructing, analyzing, prototyping. And there's really not so much of a waste. Uh-huh. Right, right, right. And, and uh, you know, that's also something that you can touch, you can feel, and you can see that it can exist. Mm. So, you know, in my workshops, I bring in like recycled plastic um, fabrics mm -hmm. to, to share with people, you know, how this technology, you know, started up and, and what it can become. And when you add like even branding or design or your own flair to the thing, then it adds another component. This is so interesting. Now, having lived in all so many different countries, how has this helped you with what you're doing and also maybe like advance your thinking and I'm sure open your, you know, your horizon so wide, you know, just seeing like maybe a half mm. of the world. Yeah. I think for myself personally, as a child growing up in these different cities, I think First of all, I'm really grateful and lucky um, to have this privilege. And I think I've always known that, especially uh, leaving South Africa was a huge eye-opener for me. You know, mm. you grow up in a space where you're kind of in a bubble, right? You, you know, when you have a bit of money, it feels like you're living a luxurious lifestyle. So, um, you know, leaving that environment and, see, and coming back to that, seeing how there is such a disconnect between reality and what is what are people facing, like poverty, right? Mm. And it's right, really just next door to you, right? Mm -hmm. And then you, you, it was just invisible. And then I started analyzing and looking at my own life, right? There were so many skill sets that I lacked. I think uh -huh. what it gave me was perspective, like seeing that there's so many different countries in the world. You could be living a certain way, right? But the next minute, it can be stripped away from you. Mm, yeah. And I think, I think that is really startup. It's really good for entrepreneurial mindset, because, because you know that this thing is temporary. Anything is temporary, right? Mm. Your success is temporary. Your lack of success is temporary. Your failure doesn't equal that you will fail forever. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I've been, you know, been told that uh, it's kind of like, you know, you're a cockroach that doesn't die, right? right. And I feel like, yeah, maybe I do have a little bit of that uh, <laughs> mindset where it's like, okay, so this thing didn't work out, but yeah. I'll find five other options. And one of them might or it might not, but it's almost like you're continuously on your vision, but you are building along the way and mistakes you're, you're learning. I think it's a really good uh, support system, like mentally. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, I've realized another thing. You're a positive thinker. <laughs> As well, yeah. You know what? It's funny because some people say that I am, and then I tell them I'm a realistic opportunist. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So how I explain that is like the glass half empty or half full, right? Like when you ask someone, "Do you think that cup is half half empty or half full?" Right. They'll tell you it's either one of them, right? right. But I say none. I say there's <laughs> water, and I need to drink it. Uh-huh. And I need to pour more. <laughs> and if I don't have more water, I'm gonna find a way to get some. So, so I feel like in that sense, I'm really realistic yeah. with what I have, right? But then, uh-huh. how do we build on that? You know. Now, with all that, wouldn't you want to hear more from Anne Liao? So, join me next week on In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 6180 kilohertz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 6180 kilohertz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kilohertz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.